This morning, as I mentioned before reading the scriptures, we're going to be looking at the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus and trying to understand the significance of this ministry and its lasting impact on the church even to today. We're going to try to understand by simply asking the question, why did Christ remain on the earth for 40 days in his glorified resurrection body following his triumphant victory from the grave. Luke, in his follow-up to his gospel as he wrote the book of Acts, introduces this particular book with this thought, and I think gives us insight as to why Christ's post-resurrection ministry took place and to see its significance. He says this, he presented himself, Christ presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Two things, first, to validate or show many proofs of his resurrection, and secondly, to emphasize important truths that he had taught them and to further instruct them regarding the kingdom of God. We would think of that in the context primarily of the church and how God's kingdom is being uh, set forth in our midst. Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, is trying to clearly portray the reality of the resurrection. Pastor Jason spoke on this last Sunday morning for our Easter service as we thought about the resurrection. He spoke a little bit later on in this particular chapter, but Paul's introduction here, I think, gives validity. Paul is wanting these people to understand that what took place in the resurrection is verifiable. It is something that's not a myth. It's not something that's just a part of a religious jargon, but it is a reality, something that is important for us to be able to sink our teeth into, to have faith in believing of what these things are. Paul presents four verifiable, verifiable proofs of the gospel in these opening words in the 15th chapter of uh, Corinthians. First of all, the evident work of salvation in the lives of believers. Paul just simply mentions there about these things are true in us and that these are the truths in which we stand. You think about the many things that happened as a result of God's work in the lives of people during that first century. The Apostle Paul, one who was a great persecutor of the church, being radically converted on his way to Damascus. Such an enormous change in his life from persecuting the church to promoting the church, from speaking against Christ to setting forth the truths about Christ, to hating the way, to engaging and being a great leader of the way and taking the gospel to the Gentiles people, just a radical transformation that can only be explained through the real work of the gospel. Not only that, you think about how the gospel impacted the, the economies of major cities such as Ephesus. As they would go in and the world, would, as it says, would be turned upside down and people converted and moving away from idolatry to engage and live for Christ. Paul is saying here the gospel is real because of the evidence in the lives of people. Even as we read this today, as we listen to this being said, we ourselves can give testimony 
to the reality of the gospel. I myself can think of my own life and the changes that the gospel brought. It is a verifiable truth that people just simply cannot explain away. But he went on to speak about other things that are proofs. He speaks about the reality of the Old Testament scriptures being fulfilled. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried. He arose again the third day according to the scriptures. You think about the post-resurrection ministry of Christ, and one of the significant things that takes place is his journey on the meeting up with two of followers of his on the road to, to Emmaus as they left Jerusalem on the day of his resurrection. He meets up with them and he begins to inquire of them of what's going on and why are they sad and they say you know don't you recognize and understand that you know our, our Jesus has been crucified and someone's taking him and so on and he engages with them and speaks about the foolishness there and then opens up to them so clearly that the, the Old Testament prophets spoke of these things and they were there as a reality of what was taking place. And it is a witness. These things are written to, uh, to, the, to the people that they might know. Even Paul's example of evangelizing is so much a part of this. Have you ever noted how many times it speaks about, as it says here in Acts chapter 17, it says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and to Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. The historical Jesus in the, in the context of the first century, many people had heard about Jesus. Many people had seen Jesus in some form or fashion. And so Paul is just saying here, the Old Testament clearly prophesied one who would come and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one who has come. But what we're going to be primarily focused on today are the multiple appearances of Christ in this 40-day period. In any legal trial, the strongest and greatest witness to any trial is the confident eyewitness, especially if you have multiple witnesses of any given event. When an eyewitness comes and gives verification of something that has taken place and many people see the same thing and give testimony in a very similar way it adds great credence to what is being presented in the trial to think about Jesus he didn't simply come forth from the grave resurrect and ascend immediately to the father he could have done that but Jesus showed himself alive to many people, many different occasions. Some recorded in John, others are not yet recorded or not recorded, but given to us uh, there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But these appearances give credence, give proof to this great fact. 
We did not see it, yet we believe. But we read the account of the scriptures of over and over and over again, Christ is indeed, came, for, came forth from the grave and people saw him. Listen to the Apostle John. John, in writing three epistles, speaks about this in the opening of his first one. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. And then he goes on to say this, which we have seen with our eyes and looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God is how John introduces the gospel, Jesus in the gospel. But now he says, we've seen him. It is believable. What we are telling you is true. Jesus Christ died and came forth from the dead, and we have seen him. We have touched him. We have engaged with him. He says, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you that this Jesus is eternal life. Not only that, we find in the book of Acts that seeing the resurrected Christ became a criteria for being an apostle. You remember that Judas took his life. One had to replace him. And as they were setting up this criteria of who would replace him, one of the things they said, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up, one of these men, the two men that they are now going to try to determine which will take Judas's place, he says, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so this sense of the post-resurrection ministry, the eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ, is a very critical and important truth so much that when Paul spoke about the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, the core of the gospel, he went on to say that Jesus showed himself, Jesus showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that he indeed was the resurrected Christ. Paul goes on to speak, the fourth proof was that of his appearance to him, one born out of an untimely way, and he was a, a witness of the resurrected Christ. The other thing that I would like to bring forth, the two reasons, one is the validity or the verifiable proofs that in Christ's post-resurrection ministry. The other is just the impact, the instructions, the reminders of what Christ had told them. If you took time, if we had time this morning to read beginning in John 13, and moving through John 17, a portion of Scripture in John 17 that J Jason spoke on a few weeks ago, we would see that Jesus instructs his disciples of many things that are going to happen, things that would be necessary for them to move forward in the church, promises that God made to them through Jesus Christ and and. and Christ is going to emphasize to them the importance of these things. During his appearances to different people, we see these things emphasized. We see them reminded. We see further instruction about the kingdom of God. How is this going to take place? Why, why is he going to leave these various things to them? Let's take some time and kind of walk through some of these appearances. 
Some take place on the resurrection day, and we engaged with some of these last week in our scripture readings. They're familiar to you. Others begin on not only the evening of the resurrection, but later on during these 40 days. His first appearance was to Mary. In John chapter 20, the portion that Greg read this morning and just a few moments ago, it's a very endearing portion, very intimate, very personal to me as I read this. Something that as I read it, it speaks to my own heart. As I was studying this week, these appearances became extremely important to my own soul. It just cemented in my heart, reminded me once again of the nature of God's or Christ's relationship to me as his child and the importance of those things as I live the Christian life. You remember that Mary came early that morning and saw the stone was rolled away and ran back to tell the, the other disciples. Peter and John, of course, came and looked inside the tomb and saw that it was empty and they went away. Mary then comes back to the garden. She's weeping. She's unsure. She's confused. What have they done with, with Jesus? She thinks it's a gardener's two angels initially saying, why are you weeping? And, uh, you know, what's the problem? And she said, well, they've taken my Lord. I don't know where they've taken him to. Can you tell me? And then Jesus steps into the scene. And he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Repeating this again. And who are you seeking? She turns to him and says, Sirs, if they've carried him away, let me know. And I, and I want to go, I want to take him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And with the simple speaking of her name, Mary's life was changed forever. <laughs> says she turned and said to Jesus, Rabboni, which means teacher. She knew that voice. Makes me think about earlier in John, that beautiful, beautiful passage about the good shepherd when he says, my sheep will follow me for they know my voice. They will know his voice. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. When I see this, it just speaks to my heart that Jesus is saying, Mary, I know you. Mary, I care about you. I will not forsake you. I have not left you. I am Jesus. I am the Jesus that was here. I died for you. I arose for you. I am here. You can trust me, Mary. And she hears that voice. What a beautiful thing in our own hearts to hear the voice of our Lord speaking to our own hearts as we read the Scripture through the ministry of the Spirit. And what a what a reassurance it is and what a beautiful thing it is. And he emphasizes this truth that my relationship with you is personal. It's intimate. I know you as an individual, she engages, as he engages with Mary. The next one is one that I've already alluded to, and that was his moving on to the, uh, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus reminding them of the truth of his word and more powerfully than anything just that he is the Christ he is the one 
that had been spoken of all through the Old Testament. He was fulfilling these things. And it was necessary for him to die and to come forth from the grave. And when he broke bread with them in their home at the table and they saw, no doubt, the nail scars in his hands, their eyes, it says, were open and they recognized him. This is Jesus. This is the same Jesus. This is one who has come. Can you imagine in the first century, in the day of the resurrection, all the confusion of all the things and all the doubt that they have to recognize and realize that he is indeed alive. He is real. He is personal. I can put my faith in him. I can follow him. I can give my life to him. All the resurgence of their own soul and the faith that created and the passion that it created in them. The same passion that it should create in us today as we think about Jesus. Sometimes because we have not seen these things and we sometimes feel distant in our relationship with Christ, we begin to wonder, are all these things true? And I believe Jesus Christ in those 40 days over and again appeared that historically, factually proven that He indeed died for us, and he is alive forevermore, ascended to the Father, yet very, very much alive. He is the Christ. The third appearance that he makes on this resurrection day is his first appearance to the twelve. Now only ten at this particular meeting. Judas, of course, has already died. We find that Thomas was not there at that first one. And we hear these words spoken. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the resurrection, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. What a dramatic scene. (laughs) They're in this room because they're afraid. You can imagine their leader being crucified, the boldness of the Jewish people, the, the evident zeal for them to stamp out Christ in the way. And they recognized that these men were followers of Christ and they were hiding away. They felt like because the emboldened state of the Jewish leaders that they would seek them out, which they no doubt would have, and seek to kill them as well. And so they're kind of huddled in this room together, and Jesus just comes through the wall. And yet they recognize that it was him. And he shows them his, the nail prints in his hands the, where the spear went into his side. It, with, it was irrefutable that there was nothing they could do to refute what was taking place this is Jesus this is the one who led us this is the one that we followed for three years this is the one who taught us it is the very same Jesus they knew it was the Lord he is different in that he's in his resurrected glorified body but this is Jesus and he says to them again peace be with you One of the things that over and again hindered the church and hinders us, and that is that sense of fear, that sense of anxiety, 
the inability to just rest in the Lord. No doubt you've experienced some of that anxiety during this pandemic. Sometimes just difficult to rest in Christ, rest in the promises of God, rest in the reality that he indeed is God and he is sovereign and he is in control. Jesus had promised them in John 14 as he is with them in the upper room. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace, Jesus says. The peace, the rest, the trust, the lack of anxiety, the the oneness with the Father. My peace, he says, I give to you. Not as the world gives it do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Jesus walks in, customary greeting, shalom. But he repeats it again almost immediately. And no doubt this repetition spoke to their heart and brought to their mind, my goodness, it was just a, 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 three days ago that Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Carson makes this interesting uh, comment on this peace. He says, these greetings of peace, it is more than just a conventional greeting, shalom. But the repetition would prompt them to recall that Jesus before the cross had promised to bequeath him his peace. Jesus' shalom on Easter evening is the complement of it is finished of the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. God has given them his peace. They can rest in that. They can rest that he indeed is alive. He is going to always be there for him. He's going to do certain things for them. He goes on and reminds them again. Even as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We're going to see another portion, so I'm not going to really hit it hard here. But over and again, Jesus is going to remind them. Pastor Jason spoke in John 17. Part of the prayer that Jesus said is, Father, send them into the world. Keep them from the evil of this world, but they live in the world and send them into the world as a witness, as an eyewitness, as a faith witness of what I am and what I have done so that they might be able to share that with others. He reminds them, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. I'm giving you my peace. You don't have to be afraid. I am alive. I am here. I am going to fulfill all the promises that I said to you. I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Another very critical element that Jesus exposes them to in this John 13 to 17 portion that evening in the upper room, this discourse that was so critical to the development of the church, and that was that he was going to send another comforter. He would send one who would come, he says in John 14, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, a comforter. One who would come alongside you and help you just as I have walked with you and helped you. And it's even going to be of greater significance because he's not bound in a body. He can minister to all of you. He says, even the spirit of truth, 
He will be with you forever whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Jesus let them know that the spirit of God was coming. He breathed on them. Whether they received that then or with the others on the day of Pentecost is a little bit of a debate and not, and not clear. But the significant part of it is that God is fulfilling his promise. Jesus is reminding them in those 40 days how impactful it was, not only to hear it from his lips prior to the crucifixion, but now after the resurrection, Jesus comes, shows himself alive reminds them of his peace, and then reminds them once again the mission of the church is to go forth. And the Spirit of God is going to come and help you. What I told you is going to take place. I'm standing here before you as a proof. Your eyes can see me. Your hands can touch me. You see the the nail prints in my hands, the hole in my side. I am who I said I was. Oh, what great, great truth that is. Thank God for this 40 days of ministry where he set these things forth. And Last of all, he says to them just regarding this Holy Spirit, and he says the power of the gospel when he talks about the truth that sin's forgiven. That as they preach the gospel, they can proclaim with confidence that God forgives sins through the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. The next meeting is with the 11 disciples, this time including Thomas. It's eight days later. They're still holed up. <laughs> They're still somewhat fearful. They're still afraid for their life. No doubt uh, the, the Jewish, there's just a lot of stir. It's now the end of the, un, the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the seven days following the Passover. It's eight days now. They're still holed up in Jerusalem. Thomas had made some bold proclamations. He said, unless I see him myself, unless I put my finger in the nail prints in his hands and side, no doubt the other disciples had excitedly told Thomas about these things. He says, I won't believe. Jesus once again enters that same room in the same fashion, comes right through the wall in this resurrection body, and he addresses them again with the greeting of peace, and he immediately turns to Thomas. And he speaks to Thomas. And he says, Thomas, come here. You said you would not believe. You put your fingers in there. As soon as Thomas saw him, what a powerful testimony. He comes and he cries out, my Lord and my God. Jesus showed himself to be Christ, his Lord, and that he indeed was the Son of God. He was God in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God. Only God could do these things, and Thomas recognized this, and it emboldened these disciples to take the gospel around the world, just as it should embolden us. We know these things through faith, but as a part of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, there are many proofs, many things that verified it. 
And now he gives instruction to us on how we take forth the gospel in this sense of the kingdom. The next time we find Jesus meeting is no longer in Jerusalem. His disciples had been went up to Galilee, the place where they spent much of their time together with Jesus around the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. And they have gone back to that area. I don't know how much time had elapsed, but somewhere between the eight days and uh, another period of time. And so Jesus now is up there. They're out fishing during the night. They're fishermen. There are only seven disciples at this particular occasion, as recorded in John 21. They're out fishing. They come in. They caught no fish. Jesus is, has a fire going on the beach. He's making some fish, probably somewhat of a common type of a sight. They look in. They see him as the early morning. They see someone there doing these things, and Jesus yells out to them, cast the net on the other side. They do so, and they take in. They've not caught any fish all night long. They take in this huge group, uh, this uh, catch of fish, so much so that the net's almost broke. John looks over at, at Peter. You can just see the wheels turning. John looks at him and says, this is Jesus. If you're familiar with the scriptures, this is an absolutely beautiful picture. Jesus making such a clear proclamation to these men that will help them immensely and can help us immensely as we live for Christ. Very early on in the ministry of Jesus, before the disciples had been called, matter of fact, this scene takes place in, a, in the calling of the initial apostles. Jesus is there on the Sea of Galilee. Crowds are already following him. Some miracles have already taken place. And so he gets into the boat of Peter, James, and John. They're fisher. They, they, have a, they fish together. And he asked them to go out a little ways, and he addresses the crowd from this boat. He then turns to them and says, cast the net over on the other side. And they said, well, Master, we've toiled all night and we've caught no fish. But because you're telling us to do this, we recognize there's something unique about you and, and your, what you're claiming to be. And so they cast the net on the other side, and the net, they just had this huge catch of fish that another boat has to come and help them bring it in. And Peter immediately falls at the feet of Jesus on the boat and says, I am a sinful man. Jesus would tell him that he is no longer going to, to do the, what he's doing, but he's going to be a fisher of men. And it says that and when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Can you imagine the impact that it would be for Jesus to say this, for them to have almost the identical experience and recognize this is the same Jesus. He is the same one that called us. He's the same one who 
called us to follow him, to forsake all, and we did so, and we were discouraged at the end, but now he has renewed that commission to us. He's renewed that identity to us. He has called us unto himself, and now he is going to continue to use us. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that is to us. Over and again, we are implored in the scriptures to be reminded of Christ and what he has done in our life and allow that to motivate us and move us forward with confidence and courage to serve him. Harken back to that time when God saved your soul. It is that same Jesus that walks through very difficult times. When we're going through great tribulation, remember it is the same Jesus that saves us, that's walking through us. He called us unto this end, and we must continue on. He is so personal with us. They come in, and Jesus had some fish that he was putting on or, or baking there on the, the fire they he asked for other fish as well as they're going to have this little feast they have some bread they're taking forth there but what a source of confidence and then at that same occasion on the beach he turns to Peter now he's seen Peter one time in the midst of a group when he was there with the uh, the 10 disciples then the 11 disciples but he's now going to address Peter. You know what it is like when something has happened in your life and you have some regret about it. Really, the last thing that Peter knew of Jesus before the crucifixion was his threefold denial. The fact that Jesus had told him he would do that. But in the midst of that, when Jesus told him that in Luke 22, he says to him, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus now is going to take that prophecy that he made in the prayer shortly before the crucifixion during the Passion Week. He's going to look Peter eyeball to eyeball and three times engage with him about strengthening the brothers. Tend my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. It is Jesus reassuring him, Peter, you are mine. Yes, you denied me. Yes, you blew it. But I am restoring you, and I again will use you to strengthen my people. I will use you as a powerful force in the leading of the church, in the building of my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You can just think of Peter and all of these things that are just flying through his mind oh what a great truth it is for us today we sometimes fail the Lord we often fail the Lord and to know just like Peter that Jesus would speak into our hearts as this would indicate to us the impact in the early church but the impact even to us now that that Jesus would take us and use us, that he prays for us, that he intercedes for us, 
He's at the right hand of the Father and he pleads our cause. He intercedes for us. He has given us the Spirit and all these things. It is Jesus telling us, yes, even in the midst of failure, I will use you. I will send you forth. I will again engage with you and use you for my glory. Oh, what a powerful, powerful lesson. As we listen to him today to be reminded of these, of these great truths. While they're in Galilee, the next setting takes place. He instructs them to go to a mountain. There he's going to meet them. Possibly it is through this occasion that the 500 people also heard some of the things he's going to be teaching them. It might have been the same time when he would have met with James, the half-brother. These things are not recorded for us in Scripture other than the glimpse that we have in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not sure of those things, but they would make perfect sense as to when they would have happened. But he takes them up on a mountain, and he gives them what we often refer to as the Great Commission. It really becomes the blueprint, if you will, for the activity and the building of the church, the kingdom of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which the Lord had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus had prayed to this end in John 17. He reminded them in their first meeting, I am sending you. As the Father sent me, I'm going to send you. The commission for my people is this. I want you to bear witness of who I am. I want you to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want you to proclaim the gospel that Jesus died for sinners. I want you to proclaim the gospel is that gospel that I will use to bring reconciliation, to reconcile sinners to the Father, to bring those whom the Father has given to me to myself. I want you to do this. I've give, been given all authority, and I want you to go and make disciples. That's what church is about. That's what kingdom work is about, making followers of Christ, making disciples. We do that through the evangelizing message of the gospel, identifying them with God through baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then a lifetime of teaching them to observe all things that I have told you, opening up the Scriptures verse by verse, not lacking in anything, not shying away from anything, but the proclamation of the truth of God because God is going to sanctify them through truth. All these things come together, all the teachings of Jesus. And now in this moment on this mountain with 11 disciples, reminding them, emphasizing, instructing in this 40-day period, go forth. And he goes on to tell them, and I am with you always. You're not going forth in your own power. You're going forth in my power. I am with you. You're going to be going forth in the power of the Spirit through the proclamation of the power of the gospel. You don't need to be frightened. I am with you. These 40 days become extremely significant for the work of the church, 
in the lives not only of these initial people in the first century church, but for me and for you. As we see these things, as we see the impact in their life, as we recognize the power of the gospel in our own lives and that Jesus is going forth with us as well. And then I conclude with this. The last appearance, at least that we find, is in Acts chapter 1. He speaks about the things, the many proofs of speaking about the kingdom. They're wanting to know, is this kingdom going to come right now? Are you going to set it up today? What's happening? And he tells them, nobody knows exactly for sure when that's going to be except God. Verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. McFarland's bearing witness of Christ in Uganda. As we'll learn on this Wednesday, the Millers being sent to go to the nation of Ghana. Missionaries taking the gospel around the world as we're going to be able to engage with pastors in Bolivia and help them strengthen the cause of taking the gospel there. As we take the gospel to the west side through what we're doing here with Hope for Appalachia and the Children's Resource Center. As we engage with people around our areas, we network and bring the gospel into our communities in Appalachia. All these things, they come forth from this very powerful moment when he is with his disciples just before he ascends, they're not aware that he's going to ascend at this point. And he says, you will be witnesses. And you'll be witnesses me to all the nations that I have been telling you. I'm going to send you to all the nations. Not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to all peoples. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. I am coming again. (laughs) Oh my goodness, can you imagine being there? No wonder I would just stand there gazing like, what just happened? But the reality and the truth of the identity of Jesus. He is God, he is Lord. All that he said, all that he did has been verified over and over and over again. And these many proofs, it's verified in the power of the gospel in us. It is like Jesus said to Thomas, You believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and believe. But our faith rests in these many events that the gospel unfold to us that are just beyond any argument. They are there. They are real. All the ways in which Jesus comes, I I care about you, Mary. I'm with you, disciples. You don't have to be afraid. I've given you my peace. I've given you my joy. I've called you to go. My Father is going to be with you. My, the Spirit of God, I'm going to send Him to help you. All these glorious truths that are just emphasized and, and re-emphasized in these 40 days that become critical in the makeup of the church. And then God laying forth this great blueprint 
and then giving us the glorious promise and hope, I am coming again. Oh, might these truths rest in our soul to bring forth much fruit for the glory of God. Father, thank you for these glimpses into this 40-day ministry of Jesus upon this earth. It is so clear as to why these are significant in the overall truth of the gospel. Even to Paul, bearing witness of the resurrected Christ, having seen him in this vision. Oh, Lord God, how we thank you. Lord, my own heart has just been overwhelmed this week as I have thought about how real and how personal you are and how you speak into us and how you care and you speak our name and we are yours and you are ours and you're a good shepherd to us. Oh, Father, thank you so very much. Thank you for the times when we stumble and fail like Peter, that you restore us, you pray for us, and then you re-engage and send us forth renewed and reinvigorated with the power that is ours through Christ. Oh, Lord, might we, like Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, might we know the hope of our calling. Oh, God, might we know the riches of the glory of our inheritance in Christ. And, Lord, might we know the power which is ours through you. Oh, Lord, let these things, these truths rest in our heart for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.